0: Hello, welcome to the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. Our guest today is Pierre Rochard. Pierre has researched and written about Bitcoin since 2013. I would say he has been one of the, if not the most influential Bitcoin researchers and writers in the development of my thinking on Bitcoin. He co-founded the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute in 2014 to curate the best primary source literature on Bitcoin. I highly recommend you check it out some of these articles that they published back then 2013 and 2014 brief little blog posts that the world has been catching on to over the last 10 years and uh um, books like mine have sprung up inspired from these brief blog posts it sounded insane at that time that a bunch of kids in Texas were writing about taking down the fed and a new global monetary system and speculative attacks against the dollar and here we are 10 years later And I mean, it still sounds crazy to most people, but it sounds a lot less crazy to a lot of people. And the people who listened, I think, don't regret listening and uh, (laughs) acting upon this at all, because uh, things have worked out very well for Bitcoin over that period. In addition to developing open source Bitcoin software, Pierre is an outspoken advocate for Bitcoin's decentralized governance. He co-hosts the Noted Bitcoin podcast and the Bitcoin for Advisors podcast. Pierre served as Bitcoin and Lightning product manager at Kraken for three years, and now he serves as Riot Platform's VP of research. Riot is one of the largest Bitcoin miners, and we are going to be discussing Bitcoin mining today, in particular discussing the economics of Bitcoin mining a few months ago. Pierre and the team at um, at Riot published a report called Bitcoin Transaction Fees, the Future Economics of Bitcoin Settlement Finality. occurs to me now that it's actually more than a few months ago. It's actually been since September last year. So that's 14 months, which is not exactly few. And I remember when the report came out, Pierre and I said, we've got to do a podcast about this. But... A lot has happened in the last 14 months and slipped through the cracks, but I'm glad to finally be doing it. So Pierre, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on. I think I think the good news is that uh, Bitcoin doesn't really change, so you can talk about it 14 months later, it's, it's still the same.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the good thing about it. It's a very low time preference thing. We could do it yeah. this week or we could do it in 14 months. Uh, it's pretty much the same thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, same th- same thing about your comment about, you know, having started writing 10 years ago about Bitcoin. It's like it uh, it lends itself to timeless perennial writing just because it does- doesn't change.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's incredible how well these blog posts have aged. I mean, you wrote these things when Bitcoin was maybe 100 bucks or 50 bucks or something like that. Yeah. And at that point, I mean, very few people had heard about Bitcoin before 2013, before, you know, before I'd say November 2013 is when Bitcoin really broke into headline news when people started talking about it. That was also the year in which Silk Road happened, and that brought it to people's attention. So before that, if you were talking about Bitcoin, you were weird. There was no escaping this. Only weird people got are into Bitcoin. We're still weird now, but we're a lot less weird. We've got you know Michael Saylor and uh, Senator Lummis and Paris Hilton. So. We're a little less weird than we were then. A lot less weird, I'd say. But incredibly enough, these ideas just held up really well. I mean, you wrote that blog post saying uh, Bitcoin has the ideal monetary policy. And that basically is the Bitcoin standard um, in blog post form. I I just expanded on that (laughs) blog post, turned it into a book. So thank you for that.
1: Fantastic. I mean, I... I love having a book that I can hand to people uh, so that uh, we can get the message out. Yeah. I mean, they
0: should just read the blog post. It's obviously easier and faster, but I'm not complaining. They need to learn about canes. Yeah, they need to learn important information about canes. And, you know, they need to put steak on the table for my kids. Yeah. So do read the Bitcoin standard.
1: <laughs> 100%. And, and you know, it does, I mean, to your credit, like it, it expands on the ideas quite a bit uh, in, in really fruitful directions. So. I think that they're complementary; They're not substitutes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Buy both, except yours are free.
1: (laughs) Go to Nakamoto Institute, you know, read everything on that website.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely indispensable, uh, Bitcoin reading. All right. So now let's get into Bitcoin mining. And so... I think this report does a good job of explaining the economics of uh, Bitcoin transaction fees. And I think um, one of the m- most common objections that we have about Bitcoin relates to transaction fees in both directions. When bi- transaction fees are low, then Bitcoin is going to die because transaction fees are too low. And when transaction fees are too high, then Bitcoin is going to die because transaction fees are too high. And I think the, your report does a good job of explaining why. Both of these things are not a problem really. In fact, it's a solution. This is just the market acting out market solutions for the issue of settlement finality. So uh tell us more. Why are Bitcoin transaction fees a good thing and how do they work?
1: Yeah. Um so I I think the first if if we start with kind of Bitcoin mining, the Bitcoin miners uh, get two kinds of revenue. One is the new Bitcoin being added to the ledger, the subsidy, uh, that gets cut in half every four years. And then the other source of revenue is the transaction fees on, you know, if you're going to send Bitcoin, you have to uh, leave some for the miners uh, as a fee so that they include your transaction in a block. So it really, you know, it, it, it comes down to the fact that you have to, I don't want to use the word bribe. Uh, you have you have to incentivize the miner to include your transaction in the block. otherwise, the miners could publish empty blocks uh, and essentially not include any transactions and still get paid the subsidy. and they don't really have an incentive to include transactions uh, without the the fees. and in fact, they have a disincentive, uh, which is that there is a cost. In the form of kind of slowing down the propagation of your winning block of having more data in the block. Uh, And so in in a very tight race between two blocks that have been found basically at the same time by two different miners, whichever one has the least data, you know, in a vacuum uh, would propagate fastest and then the miner would would win and the loser would get nothing. Uh, and so there's actually kind of a disincentive to including transactions in a block. So the, the fees solve for that, and, and they kind of counterbalance it in a market-driven way. The other aspect of it is the block size limit. So when Satoshi left Bitcoin in 2010, he really looked at the system and found ways to tighten it up so that it would survive without him in the project. And a key part of that is preventing essentially a denial of service attack of creating a one terabyte block that crashes the nodes and then puts uh, Amazon and Apple in charge of Bitcoin because they're the only ones with the data centers and the computational power to run massive nodes, uh, which would allow them to create money for themselves, right? The moment that Bitcoin node software is too expensive for normal people to to run uh that means that the insiders who do have the resources to run a Bitcoin node can completely rewrite the rules of Bitcoin, including reassigning Bitcoin to themselves right of of saying uh oh and this is exactly what ethereum did with the the d a o hack was to say actually. You know, the 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 assets in this address, they're gonna to go to this address instead. And you can hard code that into the software if you control. So in order to minimize the cost of running a Bitcoin node, uh, Satoshi did put in, in place the block size limit at the time. It was one megabyte. And he kind of just made up that number. It wasn't based on any kind of scientific analysis. I, I'm skeptical that there is even a scientific analysis for that number to be done. Uh I think that it's Kind of, um, you just got to pick a number. I uh, just like with with the money supply of Bitcoin, right? It doesn't matter in a vacuum whether it's twenty one million or forty two million. You just got to pick something. So um, it, he he picked one megabyte. Now, it obviously, it became hugely controversial. Led to uh, the B Cashers forking off in two thousand seventeen, and it also leads to tremendous volatility in transaction fees because it puts a ceiling on the throughput of transactions through the network, meaning that if there's more demand for transactions uh, for block space uh, than there is supply, uh, supply cannot adjust. So you can't increase the supply of block space in response to an increase in demand, at least in the short run. Uh, we can talk about kind of the medium and long run, and and we get into that in the research report because there's there's interesting phenomenon there. Um, but at least in the short run, it's uh, you know completely inelastic supply. What happens is that people are trying to outbid each other and trying to get into the next block. and this is particularly acute during a bull market where you have traders, arbitragers, but also just normal people who are stacking sats all at the same time. we could start talking about the uh, uh, the social phenomenon of uh, kind of the um, bull and bear market. but call it a mass hysteria of sorts. Uh, It's a psychological phenomenon of everyone trying to get into Bitcoin at the same time. And they're limited by two things. One is the Bitcoin price. And the second is the uh, transaction fees in terms of wanting to self-custody, right? Obviously, if if they're just going to leave it at Coinbase, then they don't care about the transaction fees. But in any case, so at the end of 2017, during the Apple market, when the price went all the way up to an astronomical number of $20,000 per Bitcoin, the transaction fees, on average, were about $50 per transaction. And that's, you know, an, an average. The, 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 one of the interesting things about transaction fees in Bitcoin is that they're not charged based on the amount of value that you're sending. They're charged based on the amount of data that you're consuming in order to send that value. And that, that can be pretty orthogonal in the sense that you could send a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin using one input and one output and have a very small footprint uh, on the blockchain and pay a very small fee, pay a nickel to send a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin. Conversely, you might be sending a very small amount of Bitcoin, but consuming a massive amount of data by having lots of tiny inputs and lots of tiny outputs and doing it at a time when, you know, there's a lot of congestion, you could pay more in transaction fees than you are actually moving in value. I think that is kind of frustrating for people who uh, are used to thinking of transaction fees as kind of a fixed rate phenomenon, right? That you have a $35 wire transfer, right? That it's just always $35 or they're used to thinking of it as a percentage of value. So like a credit card swipe might cost, you know, 2% of the value being transacted to have a transaction fee that is volatile. It's kind of like Uber surge pricing. People don't like that in, um, because they're uh, anti-capitalist, anti-market, first of all, right? That they're like surge pricing for them is price gouging. You know, it has a, a moralistic element of it. But it also, I think that in Bitcoin, the other um, kind of reptilian uh, distaste for the volatility of transaction fees is about adoption, right? So they see high transaction fees as slowing down Bitcoin adoption. That, as Roger Ver famously put in a uh, debate with Samson, (laughs) that that's leading to the death of children, Uh, because as, as we know, it is the case that the fiat system is killing a lot of children. And so that there is truth to that. But the fallacy is thinking that low transaction or preventing transaction fee volatility will accelerate Bitcoin adoption and thus, you know, will save lives. I think that the causal mechanism there is flawed uh, and that even if transaction fees in bitcoin were always very low, I don't think that bitcoin adoption would have happened any more quickly than it has over the past 15 years, which you know has has been pretty fast uh, by by quite a few measures, but I'll pause there uh, before I continue rambling.
0: The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on SafeAdeen.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots 12 hours apart to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. With an ice colored dust jacket on top. Go to the safehouse.com and get yours now. Yeah, no, I'll just say uh, uh, most people think Bitcoin's obviously slowed down and it's not taking off and it's not it's not living up to its potential. Once you start getting it, then immediately you become impatient about it. Why did it not take over the world last week? I was promised there'd be <laughs> <laughs> there'd be yeah. death of fiat and here we are and we're just seeing the same thing and it's inching up closely but i'll always tell people if you read the satoshi nakamoto articles in 2012 2013 and somebody told you yeah this $100 internet coin is going to be worth $37,000 in the year 2023 you'd have thought that's insane clearly it won't do it this would require too much the government won't let it Uh, It's too volatile, it's too nasty, it consumes too much electricity. There's no way that it would get to this. So this is beyond any kind of objective measure of success. I don't think anybody would have thought 10 years ago, 2013, November 2013, if you told somebody that it would be in 10 years' time, it would go up to $37,000, they would have thought, all right, that's definitely a measure of success. And yet today, people think of that as being a failure. Bitcoin has failed. It's $700 billion worth of money just out there on the internet with no central authority in charge of it. But it's a failure, apparently.
1: Total failure, you know, co-opted by uh, Wall Street, etc. But, you know, I think that coming on the 10-year anniversary of uh, writing stuff about Bitcoin did did cause some reflection for me of what mental model did I have wrong in 2013 that I thought that hyper-Bitcoinization was happening. And that it would, uh, you know, that, that bull market to $1,200, right? This astronomical number. Uh, that, that, I, I thought that that would continue. I thought that Um, sent, I, I did not uh, foresee kind of long bear markets. And part of it, you know, I was very young in my early 20s. So just high time preference, uh, you know, thinking. The other part of it, though, I think is that we think about technology adoption in a particular way because we've seen technology adoption in particular contexts of the internet or iPhones.
0: Or Facebook or WhatsApp.
1: Facebook, right. Where if, if, if a product has market fit and that it has utility, that uh, it scales up very quickly, right? And you onboard billions of people, you know, very quickly. That might be true for products that I would call commodities, right? Where you're able to scale production of that commodity. And, uh, whereas Bitcoin is a scarcity and the problem that in terms of adoption that that introduces, uh, I'll, I'll draw the metaphor with the iPhone. Imagine if when you bought an iPhone, you didn't buy one iPhone, you bought 10 iPhones because you thought they were going to increase in value. And then you have an iPhone bull market and you sell some of your iPhones on the secondary market and that people are speculating on iPhones because they are you know, increasing in value. The reason why that doesn't happen is because Apple can just manufacture more iPhones. And so they just increase their supply chain throughput and they meet the demand. And so you don't have this phenomenon of people speculating on the price of iPhones. There might be a few exceptions of like, oh, you know, it was released, blah, blah. But um, the, the, the thinking there is that when it comes to Bitcoin, because you do have the speculation, I do think that the bear markets slow down adoption, and then the parabolic moves up, uh, accelerated adoption, but also attract the wrong adopters. Uh, they attract, uh, you know, the degens who are trying to get rich quick. In a perfect world, if if humans were angels, Bitcoin's value would slowly increase by ten percent every day right? Uh, and eventually you get 100% adoption and the value stops increasing. And, you know, it's kind of an evenly rotating economy of, hey, we learned about this technology, and it slowly increased in value very quickly. But over, you know, linearly, essentially, completely detached from how flawed we are as humans, right? Our avarice or you know some people suffer from this more acutely than others uh, but uh, the the uh, and and the high time preference which does lead i think to kind of all this trading activity but i also think that there's a rational element to it of uh rebalancing your portfolio right that okay if you bought bitcoin at $1 when you know its purchasing power was a dollar and then its purchasing power increases a hundredfold it is normal for you to, you know, based on your marginal propensity to consume, that you would go consume in the form of buying a Lambo, paying off your parents' mortgage, putting your nieces and nephews through college, although that's a terrible investment. But, you know, consumption, right? We're talking about consumption.
0: It's not as bad as a Lambo. I mean, sorry, it's it's, it's better than, uh, it's worse than a Lambo. That's what I should say.
1: (laughs) Oh, well, yeah, yeah. Uh, at least the Lambo won't indoctrinate you into Marxism.
0: <laughs> that's true. It'll make you a capitalist, if anything. It'll make yeah. you appreciate capitalism.
1: Absolutely. Um, so that, that uh, the rebalancing and people selling their Bitcoin, uh, I think that that's what actually, um, you know, ultimately then you, you get into a bear market. And that drives away new adoption, right, of people naturally don't want to start saving in an asset that is decreasing in value week after week and so we see adoption of bitcoin slow down in bear markets interestingly there's not disadoption of bitcoin in a bear market it's just uh, the rate of adoption uh, dramatically decreases uh, by orders of magnitude but it's not like there's disadoption so that's i think why it's taken longer than i thought it would uh when i was in my early 20s uh is kind of this this phenomenon around the the value appreciation which you know, it's a double-edged sword, right? Uh, but Yeah, and I think also a big part of it is just um, there's
0: a fundamental difference between downloading an app like WhatsApp or Facebook and um, switching your cash balance. I think this is the, the key thing because uh, switching your cash balance is a little bit like switching airplanes mid-flight. It's not very easy because with apps, you can have 15 different social media apps on your phone. And then a 16th one comes along and it has new features like Instagram. It's, it's optimized for pictures, sharing pictures, you download it, you get the 16th. And then if that turns out to be the one that works best for you, for your business or for your interests, you end up adopting it. And then we can see Instagram go from zero to a billion in very little time because you're not really switching away from the other apps in a, in a very meaningful sense. But with money, it's very different because it's, it's it's like a living organism in that you're running a business or even as an individual not somebody who's running a business you've got your expenses and you've got your income and they're all denominated in a particular money and so if you're going to be switching to another money it's very tricky because everybody you're billing everybody you're paying is used to denominating your transactions in one form of cash dollars in particular most of the world and so then if you're going to be switching to bitcoin that's going to be a major Transaction fee measure transaction cost. You're going to be switching the income and the expenditure, and most people aren't going to want to be switching with you. So the healthy, correct way of doing it is to slowly transition your cash balance into more and more Bitcoin over time while not really endangering your running your business and your expenses. In fiat because you have liabilities in fiat that you need to meet so you don't want to switch immediately to bitcoin and then uh, witness a drawdown and then not be able to make rent and end up on the street so you want to guarantee that you can have enough fiat to meet your obligations stack the bitcoins over time and then when your bitcoin becomes a bigger part of your cash balance And then more and more people have that, more and more people have Bitcoin as part of their cash balance, and then more and more of that, more more and more of your economic transactions become Bitcoin-denominated. But that's going to take a while, and the uh, volatility, in a sense, forces you to learn that lesson the hard way, because either you get in at the right time, and then you uh, get a very big appreciation quickly, Mm -hmm. or... As happens with probably more more people, is you get in at the wrong time, because that's when the mania is. You get in when it's at the peak, when everybody's talking about it. So you buy in, and then it drops, and then you learn the lesson about portfolio sizing.
1: Just today, uh, Sailor announced that he bought another. I think it was five hundred million dollars of Bitcoin, uh, and um, you know I think that in addition, you know, if we go to just looking at building up the cash balance just on your own. Um, you know, if Facebook disappears tomorrow, it doesn't matter to you, right? Like, you, okay, your account's gone, you know, life goes on. But if your life savings disappear, that's going to change your life. Uh, it's going to affect how long you have to work and what happens to your children and your grandchildren and the opportunities that they will not have anymore because your life savings have disappeared. And so to have the confidence to put, millions hundreds of millions billions of dollars of value uh let's say of purchasing power into a new system you wouldn't do that in 2009 right? of like oh okay uh, you know i'll uh I'll, I'll save up billions of dollars in this brand new monetary system i think it takes time to establish confidence uh and it's kind of ironic because you know we say oh, bitcoin you know trust minimized trustless You still, on some level, you have to trust, right, that Bitcoin will be there tomorrow. You can develop that trust based on actual software engineering rather than based off of press releases from a central bank. Uh, So, you know, it's on much more solid footing. But nevertheless, I mean, you have to, uh, I'd even go so far as to say that you have to have faith uh, that mathematics will continue to function right the the cryptography you know uh will will continue to be there so um i think that that is also a giant mental leap that you don't have to do with gold or silver uh, i think that that has slowed down adoption as well in 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 some sense
0: yeah and with bitcoin you're going from a very small base to potentially a very large base and that's not exactly the case with gold which is already very large and very widely distributed. So there's going to be a lot of volatility and that's effectively the entrepreneurial component. You get rewarded for buying Bitcoin early in the same way that you get rewarded for buying Amazon early because you see the potential in 2000, in the year 2000, you think, yeah, this is online retail is going to grow and it's going to become bigger than, uh, than regular retail. And similarly, in 2013 or 15 or 20, you think digital money is going to grow and it's going to supersede fiat central banking. That's a speculative call. That's an entrepreneurial call. And if it was, I think the way to think about it is that there's no no rose without a thorn. And so if this was an obvious entrepreneurial call, then everybody would do it. But then that is a self-refuting prophecy in a sense because if everybody starts doing it then everybody gets in a lot of people come in the price rises so much so then bitcoin holders have so much money that inevitably they're going to be selling and that's going to bring the price down and that's going to slow down the adoption so there has to be there has to be a winding road it can't all be uh, rainbows and unicorns on the way to hyper bitcoinization we can't just have a big giant freebie where everybody just gets very rich over three weeks and everybody adopts bitcoin over three weeks and we all get really really rich it's gonna have to be the hero's journey <laughs> you're gonna have to go through all of the drama that we've gone going through over the last 10 years
1: yeah absolutely um to bring it back to mining yeah i think that it's an interesting thought experiment of um OK, if, you know, neoclassical, perfect uh, knowledge, uh, efficient markets, blah, 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 everybody adopts Bitcoin on day zero, right? January 2009, you know, if everyone's perfectly rational, they would adopt Bitcoin on in January 2009 and they would um, all be mining, uh, right? And let's say, you know, Bitcoin's market cap overnight is $10 trillion worth of Bitcoin you would have to fit that market cap into the first 50 bitcoin that are mined and then the second 50 bitcoin would get mined and so the value of everyone's holdings would have to get cut in half right to in order to spread the market cap onto the next 50 bitcoin you know uh, because you've you've doubled the monetary base and so yeah. In a, in a way like this 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 gets to this doctor flow uh conversation, which is that in a way, how Satoshi set up the distribution of new Bitcoin onto the ledger is a governing mechanism over people's ability to rapidly adopt Bitcoin. It slowed down Bitcoin adoption. You know, you you could argue that if Satoshi had said, "Okay, we're gonna do, we're gonna drip out one Bitcoin." every day for the next 21 million days. And I think that 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 would have had an impact on the adoption rate. And I think that, you know, which way it would have gone is purely speculative. But just all that to say that it's kind of uh, a lot of this is, in a way, an accident of history of how Satoshi set up the distribution of Bitcoin, you know, through the mining process, but really through that subsidy function of the uh right shift binary operator uh cutting in half the the subsidy every two hundred ten thousand blocks, which is just a completely arbitrary thing. But uh you know, I I have to I, I do have to believe that it's uh the the best way to do it because that's the way it is.
0: Yeah, I think ultimately, if you did it with say one coin a day, or ten coins a day, or a hundred coins a day, it wouldn't look very different because the supply growth rate would also be declining. Because initially, one hundred, you know, on the second day, one hundred coins added to one hundred coins is a hundred percent growth rate. But then by the end, a hundred coins added to twenty-one million coins or or twenty million nine hundred and ninety thousand nine hundred and ninety coins. Nine hundred coins that is practically zero percent growth, so it would still be declining, but yeah, I think he 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 skewed it so that it declines a lot faster by doing the halvings
1: yeah the um I'd argue that the bulk of the dilution exactly. was yeah. front loaded, so now ninety percent of the Bitcoin have been issued in a world where he had done a linear distribution. And, you know, the dilution had been spread over time. That means that it would have taken longer for Bitcoin to be harder money. Uh, and he kind of made Bitcoin hard money. And, you know, perhaps it, if he had front loaded it more, people would have felt like it's unfair. And that it would have had kind of a negative consequence in that direction. But, um, yeah, I find it to be an interesting interesting,
0: uh, yeah, intellectual exercise. I think the fact that it it it's so front loaded towards the beginning is really what incentivizes adoption because when you were buying in at say in 2012 around the same around the time of the first having say November 2012 you'd already had half the coins so you knew that 100 years from now there wasn't going to be more than double what's going on if it wasn't that case if it was uh, if there was no having then what was produced after the first four years would be a lot less than half of the total supply, regardless of what the number is. But in terms of what the supply is, and basically the measuring it, measuring the production as a ris- as, as a percentage of the existing stockpile, it would be massive. You knew that moving forward over the next hundred years, there was going to be an enormous increase because you're going to be producing the same quantity that you produced over the last four years every four years into perpetuity so the existing coins in the first four years were only a very tiny fraction and they were going to get diluted very significantly so that severely undermines the incentive to get in early but knowing that the dilution is going to be diluted in a sense meant that yeah you should get in early
1: Yeah, I I agree with that. And I I think though that um, the subsidy has led to some confusion on the Bitcoin mining side. And this gets into kind of, uh, you know, people talking about the security budget, right, of uh, Bitcoin getting getting cut in half. And the way I see it is that um, Satoshi could have done the distribution of the coins outside of mining. So he could have just said, I'm giving 21 million Bitcoin to myself. And I'm going to set up a faucet website and, you know, you can get Bitcoin from the faucet. And people did set up faucets, you know, back in the day, uh, Gavin Andreessen famously. I, I think that why there's a lot of wisdom in putting it through the mining process is that, first of all, that faucet would have just ended up being mining anyway, right? In the sense that people set up the, the CAPTCHAs, you know, to make sure that you're a human. Well, that would have just made it so that people try to create algorithms that are able to, um, you know, solve the CAPTCHA automatically to get the Bitcoin. And so ultimately, you know, the cost put into acquiring the Bitcoin would equal the marginal revenue, right? So it would have just been mining in a different form, uh, mining Google CAPTCHA uh, solutions. And it would have been inferior because uh, the way that, you know, Mining within Bitcoin works is that it's this global permissionless competition, and having that be open means that there's no monopoly seniorage rents off of issuance of bitcoin, and so I think that that really gets to the heart of a a monetary problem with fiat is uh it is this problem of of seniorage, and I think that I draw a very Strong box around that and say that's the only problem being solved by adding Bitcoin through the mining process. It's not solving for the problem of transaction finality. It's not solving network security, uh, you know, all these other things that uh, you know, those are different. The way transaction finality is solved is with transaction fees that we're talking about, the way network security is solved is through the use of node software and cryptography, um, and also of, you know, how the node software has preventing eclipse attacks, preventing denial of service attacks, you know, all of these kind of, um, this is what I would really consider to be security. And then, of course, there's the security of the private keys. And that's solved by hardware wallets. It's solved by, you know, there's... Cryptography. Yeah, the, the Bitcoin mining, you know, in today's state of... 98% 98% of the revenue comes from new issuance of Bitcoin, right? That means in my mind, the Bitcoin mining industry, th- what it is solving for, the 98% of what it is solving for is anti-seniorage. Uh, it, you know, I I I consider Bitcoin mining to be anti-seniorage technology. As time goes on and the, you know, the halvings happen and that percentage decreases relative to transaction fees, uh, then there's less and less necessity for anti-senior technology because there's just less issuance. Um, and that the percentage of Bitcoin mining being about anti-censorship technology, of uh, you know including transactions and blocks, that will increase as a percentage. But I don't really have a, a view on whether it will increase as a necessity, right? It's, it, okay, so what I mean by that is that in, in our re- report, we talk about Transaction fees don't just solve the anti-censorship problem. They kind of um, or not in the traditional sense that people think about it of somebody trying to prevent a transaction from being in a block. The I, I think that when we look at what we were talking about in terms of the congestion pricing of lots of transactions competing to be in the next block, um, that the that is a form of censorship and it's a form of attack. Uh, of people just trying to jam as much data into the blockchain as possible, um, and and we see this with ordinals. And uh, we, the, there's the, there's been this uh, very rich debate around uh, ordinals. But from my perspective, it actually it it almost doesn't even matter whether it's ordinals or what we would call legitimate monetary transactions. That is, that if if somebody is trying to outbid your transaction, they're trying to censor your transaction, right? And the only way to uncensor your transaction is to increase your transaction fee in excess of what the competition is doing. And that's true regardless of whether your competitor is trying to double spend the same Bitcoin or whether they're just trying to spend some other Bitcoin. Um, And so they're getting in the
0: way of you spending your Bitcoin or you making a transaction.
1: Yeah. By, by outbidding your transaction and excluding it from a block knowingly or unknowingly. And so I really see kind of that that's the fundamental purpose of Bitcoin mining outside of anti-senerge technology is um, being a decentralized clock so that you can order transactions so that you can solve the double spending problem. But also so that you can solve uh, the spam problem, which is that in order to spam Bitcoin, you have to pay when we look at things like ordinals or Satoshi dice or other what I would call wasteful usages of uh, the Bitcoin blockchain space, they have to pay the transaction fee. And ultimately, that is what is going to exhaust their resources and prevent them from continuing the attack. Uh, and so the the attack really is, is time bound and, and resource limited due to the existence of transaction fees.
0: Yeah, I think this is this is something that I um, learned from you and before the report. It's in the report, but I heard it before that. And I think generally we think of mining as Bitcoin security. And in particular, when you first start learning about Bitcoin, you can't shake off the idea that miners are securing Bitcoin, that if you want to attack Bitcoin, you have to in a sense, defeat all of those miners. And when I first started understanding Bitcoin, I think it was in around 2013 or so. And there was an article in Forbes magazine which explained just how much mining uh, hashing power is there behind Bitcoin. And it was absolutely astounding at that point. And that was the first time that it really clicked in my mind that this isn't just a bunch of code with a bunch of nerds that are sitting there and agreeing all right we're going to have this many coins i hadn't paid much attention to bitcoin at that point because i just assumed it was a bunch of nerds who had agreed that this is what we're going to do and for my mind as a gold bug you know i thought oh well obviously these guys are going to learn the hard way that uh, politics and money is an insolvable problem and the only solution is to have gold which is governed by the rules of chemistry it's only a matter of time before the committee behind this uh, Bitcoin thing start fighting among themselves about monetary policy, and then the whole thing goes uh, haywire. Effectively, I thought of Bitcoin as being one of the shitcoins. It, 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 in my mind, it was what shitcoins are today. And that's exactly what shitcoins are. You know, They switch their monetary policy every time somebody trolls them about uh, Bitcoin having a better monetary policy, or every time somebody writes a book saying Bitcoin is sound money. They go and they make their shitcoin into ultrasound money, uh, which is hilarious. But go back to the point. You think of mining as being the security of Bitcoin. But I think you're absolutely correct in saying it's not really the security of, or it, it, it is part of the security. Because if you do compromise mining, you will compromise the network. There's no question about it. But the particular part of Bitcoin that it secures is the distribution of the coins. That's it. It's out there to prevent The uh, distribution of the coins from being centralized, from being captured by one authority, from being compromised by that authority, from being inflated, um, and from, as you said, the issue was that it's inevitable. You're going to get a world in which the cost of making money is going to... uh, tend toward the revenue that you make from making money. So even if it was just a faucet, people are going to spend enough money at solving CAPTCHAs in order to get the faucet Bitcoin, which is effectively what proof of work is. It just formalizes it in a neater way than trying to hack CAPTCHAs. So what do you think would be the um, argument that Bitcoin mining is part of the security do you do you still see that as being valid? I mean I lean more and more toward your perspective. But if you were to steelman the other argument that it is part of the security of the network, what would you say? Like why is it not about the security of the network? Why is it about the distribution?
1: Yeah, so that's a a great question. So I I you know I I'd, I'd say um it's about the distribution but it, it is also about the transaction finality. And I guess I don't like the word security in particular. Uh, I just like the word finality better. Uh, But often they're one in the same. Like it is, uh, you know, from a, it's just semantics, right? In the sense that like people just think about that word differently than I do. Uh, But um, because I think of it as like cybersecurity of like, uh, but in terms of transaction finality, transaction finality is critical, right? If you have an electronic cash system, uh, if people are just able to reverse transactions here and there all the time, then th- as we were talking about, that's going to erode the trust and the faith that people have in the system. Uh, and the, that would be, I've heard it argued that it would be catastrophic. Uh, although in practice, when I look at shit coins that lack finality, they actually seem to do okay. Um, because it's not that they have zero finality, it's just that they have weaker finality. And then if we look at the fiat system, the fiat system has just catastrophically low levels of finality, right? That uh nothing is final in the fiat system. Everything everything can be reversed. I, I'd say that there's it kind of cuts both ways. Like I see a strong argument for we need uh absolute finality, unquestionable finality, but I also see the other side of we can overplay the importance of finality and that you need enough finality, but you don't need uh at, you know a hundred percent, and that there's diminishing marginal returns on finality uh as kind of a uh you know a property of the system, and that there's trade offs as well and meaning that uh you know and I'd say the same argument around national security right people talk about national defense are like, oh well, do you need a hundred percent national defense of like your border has just soldiers on it? you know, the entire way of the border, you've got a 1000 miles of border, you got a 1000 miles of soldiers and tanks, and, you know, you're just ready for anything, they would just be uneconomical, right? And so um, when people talk about, oh, we should, we should have very high transaction fees. In my mind, it's like, well, are we being attacked? (laughs) You know, if if we're not being attacked, then you're just wasting resources because you can be reactive. Um and I think this gets overlooked a lot in in the mempool of you being able to outbid attackers with transaction fees you can react to an attack you don't have to building up a a massive you know military industrial complex in order to be ready for any attack instead you can uh essentially uh you know perform guerrilla warfare uh insurgency against uh your adversary and that's what I see the mempool as is kind of the, uh, the, the, you know, where that insurgency happens. So the and that's that's kind of what we outline in the, in the report. I also think that there's a uh, labor theory of value uh, Marxist fallacy of people look at the size of the Bitcoin mining industry today and they say transaction fees have to increase in order to continue to have miners at the same scale that they're at today. And it's like, well, me working at a Bitcoin mining company, yes, I agree. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, But if we look at it objectively, uh, no, that's not the case. And that um, really, if you kind of do the thought experiment of the reductio ad absurdum of, let's say there was only $1 worth of Bitcoin of mining revenue per day. And so that would only justify the cost of one person mining on their home laptop, right? And so and consuming electricity for that. So Bitcoin mining would be 100% centralized. Okay, now, what can that person do? They can censor transactions, right? So let's say they start censoring transactions. Well, now you start seeing transaction fees get bid up in the mempool. And now the daily revenue of Bitcoin mining doubles to $2 per day. And so now somebody else turns on their laptop and they start including the transactions that were getting censored. Uh, and so on and so forth. And so, in a world where there is no censorship of transactions, nobody wants to attack, nobody wants to censor, uh, there's no and there's no subsidy because it's the year 2140. You could have a mining industry that is one dude in his parents' basement with his laptop. And I would argue that the system is still secure because what gives the transaction finality is the permissionless nature of bitcoin mining it's not the absolute size of the resources being consumed in at any point in time in bitcoin mining it's really about how much bitcoin sorry how much resources could be getting consumed if somebody were attacking it that makes that gives it finality meaning that you can't see the finality because it's just economics in one lesson, right? You don't see the alternative reality of what would happen if somebody were attacking. And I also think that it leads to, you know, let's let's talk game theory. <laughs> it leads to people not attacking because they know that their attack is going to be undone. And so then why bother? Uh and so it's I think that, that uh that aspect of Bitcoin mining and transaction finality gets overlooked and then people just kind of get into thought experiments about how high transaction fees have to be in order to, you know, o- overcome the the having.
0: Yeah. I think this is a very very powerful point. I think we uh we just assume as you said that bitcoin mining needs to develop the same amount of electricity spending and uh, hardware spending that we have today. But I think your analysis makes it sound like, no, maybe we don't." And I think that's very, very compelling, because currently, it, it might just be the case, and I think that is the case that we just need we are spending all of this amount of resources on uh, mining because there are new coins being minted. If there weren't new coins being minted. Maybe we don't need this much spending in order to make Bitcoin secure. Maybe we don't need massive billion-dollar mining companies. Maybe in 100 years from now, there just won't be that thing. Maybe mining will go back to being something that's done by nodes. Without the subsidy, without the new coins that are being issued, maybe we go back to a system in which the nodes themselves mine, and that ensures enough decentralization to ensure enough Censorship resistance. Without the new coins being mined, if it's only about transaction fees, maybe it's not going to be as little as just being CPU mining on individual nodes, so one node equal to one miner. Maybe it'll be a little bit bigger, but i don't really see why the amount of resources needs to continue to grow i think we've i mean i'm very sympathetic to the idea that bitcoin should spend a lot of energy and i'm kind of disappointed that it It, will that it might stop boiling the oceans and (laughs) according to the latest uh, research apparently bitcoin is uh, eating all the swimming pools i don't know if you've heard uh bitcoin's going to finish the world's swimming pools we're going to run out of swimming pools because all of you selfish bitcoiners are sending transactions apparently each transaction costs one swimming pool so this stuff really warms my heart when i hear um, environmental hysterics and central bank employees like that dutch loser going on about how bitcoin is consuming so much energy and so much resources and so much water and so much co2 it's just idiotic luddite thinking wherein anything that we consume is bad because we shouldn't be consuming we should go back to um subsisting on uh, the product of our own hands under the jungle because that somehow makes us virtuous it's nonsensical and I've always not been part of the group within Bitcoin who want to try and downplay Bitcoin's energy consumption downplay Bitcoin's emissions downplay Bitcoin's environmental impact as people like to call it for me Whatever it is, if people are paying for it, then it's worth it. And for me, it has been worth it. It saved me from hyperinflation in Lebanon. And uh, none of all of these stupid central banks could have done anything to help me escape hyperinflation so it's definitely worth it it's definitely more important to me than my washing machine it's definitely more important to me than your washing machine much more important than all of the washing machines and the dishwashers and the drying machines and the tvs and the laptops of all of the people complaining about bitcoin who can all go and stuff themselves because who cares about what you spend your electricity on i find bitcoin to be a much more valuable use of electricity so there is a part of me that wants Bitcoin to continue to grow in consuming more and more electricity, and I remember in the early days, some of the early Bitcoiners had said things like, "It's inevitable that at a certain point, Bitcoin is going to consume half the world's electricity. There will be one half of our electricity is going to be out there making economic goods, and the other half will be out there making Bitcoin." And it's tempting to believe that, but I don't believe it's correct. I don't think there's any reason why uh, it should grow to that extent. Even today at about 0.1% of the world's electricity consumption, it's an enormous number. 0.1% is still a huge number. And I'd be very happy if it goes up more because electricity is not a fixed pie. And uh, Bitcoin taking electricity means that uh, children in Africa will have to uh, study in the dark. We generate electricity and there are infinite sources of electricity, whether it's hydrocarbons or nuclear or hydroelectric energy or solar or wind. There are infinite amounts of energy that we could use to trans, to, to produce electricity. And so Bitcoin isn't taking electricity from anybody. Bitcoin is producing and incentivizing the production of electricity. I, I'd love to be out there and just rubbing it in no-coiners' faces and telling them we're going to consume more electricity than everything else on Earth. but. I don't see that as the case. I think uh, obviously Bitcoin is an economic system and it tends towards efficiency because it's a free market. And I don't see a reason why we could be consuming more electricity than we need. And we don't need the electricity, unfortunately, to just uh, rub it in the face of the no-coiners. As much fun as that is, we need the electricity for the network to function. And I think... It's about the distribution. It's about ensuring inflation resistance. It's about ensuring that nobody has an easy way of making infinite amounts of Bitcoin. And once we get to the point where we've got all the 21 million Bitcoin made, I'm not sure we need all that much electricity in order to keep the transactions uh, working. I think think the threat of the transaction fee uh, rising and the threat of mining becoming more expensive allowing for more miners to come in and uncensor the transactions that you're trying to censor is likely going to be enough to dissuade any potential attacker because it's like having a very big guard dog. If you have a very big guard dog outside your house, the guard dog is never going to do anything. You know, the scarier, the more effective the guard dog is, the less likely it is to ever have to eat a thief, right? Right. Because the thief knows if I'm going to jump into this house, I'm going to get eaten. So this is essentially what's going on. So we don't need to have our guard dog go out there and eat everyone in order to secure the house. We just need the threat to be there. And that's, I think, the case with Bitcoin mining. We don't need to be consuming all of the world's electricity much as we would like to. We just need people to know that we we could do it if we had to.
1: Yeah, I think that's 100% right. And- let's just look at the numbers of uh, the total Bitcoin mining revenue annualized is approximately $12 billion. The total revenue for Exxon is $346 billion. And that's just Exxon. So we're really talking about a very small amount. And, and we can equate revenue to, to resource consumption, right? Just mechanically, right? Um, and that, you know, if Bitcoin mining is... Con- is is using up twelve billion dollars of resources, and Exxon is using up three hundred forty six billion dollars of resources. Where is the hysteria coming from? I think they just don't like Bitcoin. It's not. It's it's not even about the twelve billion dollars because twelve billion dollars is a drop in the bucket of things that are quote unquote you know bad for the environment, politically incorrect, et cetera. So there's there's that, and then I think though that. My 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 comment about twenty one forty and just one laptop mining, I would argue that is a more of a thought experiment than a prediction. Because what I predict is that first of all, in the short run, the Bitcoin purchasing power is going to more than double every four years. And so I think that in the short run, or when I say short run, I mean the next couple of decades. Because you know I'm not uh, I'm low time preference. Um, The mining industry is going to continue to grow because the value of Bitcoin is going to continue to appreciate faster than the halvings, uh, as it has done over the past 15 years. And then on the transaction fees, this is really where we get into the technology side, because I really think that the higher transaction fees are, the more interest there is in terms of developing scaling technologies that bring down the transaction fees. So. It's kind of a paradox, and this is why I'd I'd say you know BTC Bitcoin is a scarcity, block space is a commodity. If you look at even with the one megabyte block size limit, um, as, assuming we believe you know the infinite nature of time, uh, there will be an infinite amount of block space, right? But there will only ever be twenty one million Bitcoin. So
0: yeah, there's yeah. no having of the block space every four years.
1: No. <laughs> Uh, and as much as I like small blocks, uh, having the block space every four years would render Bitcoin virtually unusable, you know, by the year 2140. Um, and I'd argue that there, what we've seen is the opposite, that with SegWit, we saw a doubling of block space. And so block space is a shitcoin. Do not invest in block space thinking that it's somehow scarce. Right. Uh, And this goes back to the ordinals conversation of people talking about, oh, you know, or inscriptions, it's like permanent, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, it's not. (laughs) You're, uh, (laughs) this is like, it's, 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 it's moronic. This idea that because it's part of Bitcoin, it's scarce Uh, or because there's only one megabyte every 10 minutes. It's scarce. It's like, no, that's not, that's not what scarcity means, at least from my perspective. And it's not from a technological perspective. That is that we can continue to do soft forks and, more controversially, hard forks uh, to increase the block size limit or at least to increase effective throughput, meaning that if you have taproot that makes a multi-sig take up 10 times less, less block space, increasing that efficiency is effectively increasing the block size limit. Uh, it's increasing the transactional throughput of the system. And so I would argue that there's kind of a, on one hand, there's a deflationary, uh, you know, of an increase in supply of block space over the long term due to technological improvements. And then on the other hand, you've got an increase in demand for block space due to adoption of Bitcoin as a monetary system. And so there's, it's kind of a a, a race between the two. and what we end up seeing of what's the market clearing price of Bitcoin block space is the result of that race. And that over the long term, who will win in that race? That is, uh, will transaction fees kind of be elevated because we reach technological limits to our ability to scale on chain versus will transaction fees trend towards zero because you know, we continue to find Magical cryptographic properties that allow us to compress data into smaller and smaller amount of block space. I don't know. And I think that was the conclusion of our research report is we'll see of what the outcome is. I do think that there are, as in many areas, diminishing marginal returns. So I do think that um, the technological improvements in Bitcoin will get harder and harder uh, and there will be less and less juice to squeeze out of the lemon. And thus, transaction fees, they're not going to be astronomical. And they, it's not like we can mechanically say they're going to replace the the subsidy. But I do think that they're going to be higher than they have been in the past uh, from a median perspective. And I also think they're going to continue to be volatile. So we're going to continue to see uh, boom and bust cycles in transaction fees. And that means that Bitcoin mining is going to continue to be a serious industry of, first of all, because of the increasing purchasing power of Bitcoin, and then second of all, because of the increased usage of the Bitcoin network and that value accruing into transaction fees and into the mining industry.
0: Yeah, from where we stand right now, looking uh, looking into the future, there's a lot of headway for Bitcoin's value to grow. And the... Subsidy is going to keep having by uh, uh, is going to drop by half every four years. So there's more room for the value to grow than there is for the having. In other words, as long as the value grows over four more than double every four years, then the value of the subsidy increases. And so you would expect the mining industry to also become bigger, even ignoring transaction fees. But then you add to the fact that transaction fees are likely to grow as well. So you'd expect mining to continue to grow. But on a very long time horizon, that headroom for Bitcoin's value to grow is going to decline. Uh, eventually, there's going to be a limit on how much growth Bitcoin can achieve. Once it achieves full adoption, once everybody in the world is using Bitcoin, then when the having reward drops by half, the subsidy drops by half, The mining industry uh, drops by half in terms of the subsidy, at least. So you could see that over time, you're going to see that the. um, for now, I think, the mining industry is likely to continue to grow. But over time, you can see a case for why it would decline, because the growth is going to stop and it's going to reach certain limits. I mean, it's still going to grow in turn because the world economy is going to continue to grow even at full adoption but it'll grow at 5% a year something like that which will be less than uh, the having so the having is going to decline that mm-hmm. so then the question then becomes whether the transaction fees will rise to make up for that and i think you're 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 probably correct that it's um, it's going to be volatile um, at least for a very long time but eventually though i wonder if there's going to be some kind of equilibrium or trending toward an equilibrating process in which once everything's been tried once all of the tricks have been tried all the attacks have been tried people who've tried all of these ways of attacking the network have realized that they're fruitless then you again to go back to the guard dog metaphor the guard dog's going to run out of thieves to eat because all the dumb thieves <laughs> Have yeah. already been eaten. And now nobody's dumb enough uh, through natural selection. Nobody left is dumb enough to try and uh, mess with the guard dog anymore. So, in this case, you would expect that perhaps through all of the scaling technologies with Lightning and Multisig and all these more efficient ways of using block space, we end up with a world in which we have more room for transactions off chain and through all these creative ways that the volatility may go away from the transaction fees themselves and go toward the pressure of how do we handle that. So rather than the transaction fees going up because there's an attack, what happens is that um, lightning throughput goes up. So people start using lightning more because on-chain is becoming more expensive because we're busy uh, having our guard dog eat a thief or something like that. And so perhaps that would lead to the stabilization of transaction fees in some sense. Do you think that's likely?
1: Yes, uh, I would add as well that, you know, with Lightning, for example, um, you can think of a Lightning channel as a derivative on block space, where basically by opening a channel, you, you, you do have to use block space for that. But then it gives you an option of when to close the channel. And it gives you an option to transfer value in the meantime. And so by being able to time when you hit the blockchain, you can help avoid the congestion uh, pricing and still be able to transact in Bitcoin. And so that I think will help more evenly distribute demand for block space over time. Uh, and then, of course, if you don't have the mass hysteria of people, you know, trying to log on to, you know, buy Bitcoin and withdraw it to their cold storage, you know, every four years, then that that would also reduce the volatility. There's also, I, I do think though that at the end of the day, Lightning does have trade offs with Bitcoin and that uh, with on chain, and that if you want to secure large amounts of value, you have to do an on chain transaction, and that the amount of information needed to do a transaction has a lower bound that is that there is some floor for the data like you have to have an amount right like you have to have a destination uh so you know so i think that there's like eventually there's a situation where we've extracted every efficiency possible and Demand is still greater than supply for block space because the transaction finality properties of the on-chain, you know, is just greater than layer twos, off-chain, all of that. I just see so many variables in both directions and it's kind of just, I I, I, I know there's a fallacy of the middle, but I actually don't think it's a fallacy in this case. I think that... um, It's
0: the market process.
1: Yeah, it's the market process. And it's also very far in the future. Uh, that is that uh, the today we're at less than 1% of adoption, I would argue. And so if Bitcoin continues to do its thing, I think that the Bitcoin mining industry, let's say 2200, the year 2200, very long term. Will the Bitcoin mining industry be smaller than it is today in 23 or bigger I would argue it'll uh, be bigger, but not that much bigger, uh, meaning that it's going to artificially be very like the Bitcoin mining industry, I think, is going to expand tremendously in the t- 2030s I- in the next decade because of Bitcoin's value dramatically increasing. Uh, and then it will go into a long decline. And there was actually a NIDIG, uh report uh, that that kind of illustrated this, that you know based on on price assumptions of you know reaching full adoption and all that that's not a problem for for Bitcoin. Uh, I think what it it's a problem for is the new entrance into the mining industry. I'd argue it's not even a problem for the incumbents, like like riot. Uh, it's really a problem for the people who let's say they 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 leverage up uh, they fomo into the mining industry, you know at the top. and we saw people do that in the last bitcoin cycle uh, and so. It just really depends on, and I find this fascinating as well. Just next year's having, who's going to survive? Because let's assume the Bitcoin price goes sideways, you know, to thirty thousand uh, dollars, you know, into next year. You would expect that half of the Bitcoin mining industry to go out of business. But the reality is that that's not going to happen. One is because today they have profit margins that are greater than you know th- th- that will allow them to continue to operate. But the other thing, too, is that if you get rid of the marginal players, then you essentially free up market share for the other incumbents. And uh, that you know with their profit margins, they're able to continue to, to, to survive. And so I'd argue that it might be like 25% decline in Bitcoin mining rather than a 50% decline that you would kind of expect in a, a, a vacuum. The other way to look at it, too, would be that Bitcoin price was $17,000 a year ago. And that a lot of the Bitcoin miners might have done their capital budgeting based off of $17,000, not based off of $34,000. And so the doubling of the Bitcoin price has already happened. Uh, And so uh, it's already netted out kind of the having and that hash rate will not decrease at all. It'll just stop growing. Um, But we'll see. Time will tell. But I, I just think that that short term, analysis you can extend to the long-term analysis as well
0: yeah and then of course uh, there's also the uh, possibility that the price keeps going up but then everybody gets over leveraged as they always do and yeah. then difficulty goes up and then they all get wrecked
1: <laughs> yeah and um i think another i know we're we're over time here so uh, cut me off if uh <laughs> no it's fine going too long uh, another interesting economic phenomenon in, in the mining industry is the valuation of the mining rigs themselves, which in traditional electronics, right, it's just it's purely deflationary, right? You would just expect the, the value to keep going down. But because a mining rig is a, you know, its value is the present value of the future Bitcoin being generated by it, the the value of mining rigs can increase until they get diluted out by the manufacturing of new mining rigs. And that because Bitcoin's price increases so quickly in the bull markets, the supply chain of Bitcoin mining cannot keep up. And so in the short term, what you see is that the value of mining rigs dramatically increases. It's an open question as to whether that will happen in the next cycle. Because Bitcoin mining rig manufacturers have continued to expand their manufacturing capabilities, you know, broadly speaking, over the past five years, let's say, that uh perhaps in the in the next cycle, there will not be a bottleneck of mining rigs coming onto the market, but the bottleneck might appear in different parts of the supply chain for Bitcoin mining, and namely, I think in the area of literally power generation, power plants, uh, the, you know people will be trying to build more power plants uh, for uh, bitcoin mining uh, because you know we're at that industrial scale, uh, and then in electrical equipment of transmission towers of of electricity uh and then transformers and and all of this electrical equipment to you know go to low voltage that is competing with other industries like AI right the uh these big data centers that are being built by the likes of Microsoft and it's interesting you know there was a New York Times article that was like against bitcoin mining and it seemed to have some fingerprints of having been motivated by Microsoft, right? And so now we're seeing other industries that are competing for scarce resources in the short term of transformers and electrical equipment and data centers that want to slander Bitcoin mining and make it seem bad so that uh, they can build their data center because, you know, these, these are substitutes essentially in the short term. Um, so, yeah, we'll we'll, we'll see how, how that develops. Uh, hopefully it's more of a uh hey let's let's bring these two industries together we'll see i think there's going to be a lot of uh competition even among the lobbying of uh between data centers of ai versus bitcoin
0: yeah i mean i think there's a uh, th- there's a short-term competitive nature to it but i think it is kind of complementary in the long run um i think a, one great metaphor i came across on twitter once was that uh Bitcoin mining is going to do to energy what streaming did to broadband. So the short termist scarcity mentality in economics would say, well, if everybody wants to start streaming everything online, if everybody wants to do video calls, if everybody wants to watch videos, if everybody wants to watch their sports game online, we're going to run out of bandwidth. And then nobody will, will be able to use the internet for important, useful things like email or whatever but that's not what happened. In fact, the more demand there was, the more there was an incentive to invest in internet infrastructure. And that led to bandwidth becoming cheaper and cheaper over time. And I think the same thing will likely happen with energy for Bitcoin. And I think also the same thing is going to happen with processing power. In fact, we were having this discussion a couple of weeks ago with uh, Alex Vetsky on uh, AI and Bitcoin. And I think the drive toward the hysteria around AI of this is going to take over the world. We need to regulate it. We need to put a pause on it. I mean, if you've been around and you're familiar with how governments work and you've read some Rothbard, you know that they're not out there looking out for you. They're out there looking out for themselves. And this is effectively a way to try and uh, corral this technology toward being used to benefit the government rather than having it uh, benefiting people. So the idea is we're going to have the algorithms. We're going to have all of the uh, big data centers and the big computing power so that we can control you. And, you know, we don't want you to be doing too much math because, you know, too much math yeah. is bad for you. Um, <laughs> you can't handle the math. So let us, the uh, you know, the, your overlords who understand math, at the government offices let us in
1: particular don't don't do your own thinking yeah let us think for you
0: yeah exactly i mean that's the thing and if you have all these computers doing helping you with thinking you never know what you might think you might come to disagree with your government and then you'll be an extremist so i think there's that the, the that is the kind of problem with ai That's the danger of AI as far as I'm concerned. It's not that the machines are going to rise and kill us. It's that the government is going to take it and it's going to only use it to uh, control and surveil and uh, manipulate us rather than letting us have fun with math and do amazing things (laughs) with math. But I think Bitcoin sets us free in both senses, in the energy and in the processing power, because it's out there incentivizing the production of processing power, just like it's Just like streaming incentivizes the production of bandwidth. And so I think it's going to break the government's monopoly on AI because it's just going to continue to make processing power and microchips so much more profitable by subsidizing the industry effectively because it's going to provide so much money to be made in that industry. And it's going to allow for a way of monetizing it that is uncensorable, that anybody can use. So anybody can buy a miner and plug it into some isolated power source and monetize it. And that's just going to provide a big bounty for microchip developers to continue to make their chips faster and stronger. And that's going to mean not only will we have more energy, but we will also have more math and more money outside of the control of the state i think that's the uh that's the positive uh scenario for bitcoin
1: yeah absolutely uh more truth i think that the it, it's uh you know i've been using chat gpt and ai quite a bit and i never I
0: noticed i love the way you use them on twitter yes
1: yeah and it's it's fascinating as a tool i mean i just i it's um i'm still i'm still trying to wrap my head around kind of what the implications will be but um yeah, it's uh, a very, very powerful thing, and like any tool, it can be used for good or bad, right? And the the government wants to, yeah, use it for their bad. <laughs> yeah, for
0: for for those listening who are, do not follow Pierre on Twitter, Pierre has really found one of the most ingenious and useful ways of using uh, ChatGPT, which is to refute the bullshit of people posting bullshit on Twitter. So. Uh, governments and the various nefarious actors and central banks they have the ability to finance people to continue to produce all kinds of garbage and so um, you know when you find a lot of people out there telling you bitcoin is bad that there's a problem with bitcoin or bitcoin is boiling oceans or bitcoin is not going to scale or all of these things not all of that is just innocent dumb people making innocent dumb arguments a lot of these people are uh not innocent dumb people getting paid to make these arguments, some of these people openly work for central banks. central banks are natural competitors to Bitcoin, and central banks have infinite money effectively. They could continue to pay for prostitutes like that to get online and spread the message that bitcoin can 't work won't work is bad. Bitcoin kills kittens, whatever so there's an infinite amount of propaganda that governments can produce, and that happens all over the world. I think. You know you don't want to be too paranoid but it doesn't hurt to be a little paranoid i don't think all of the um, drama you hear around bitcoin on the internet can possibly be all innocent i mean we know some of it comes from central banks It's financed by people who work for central banks and some of them are open about it i think there are some that are probably not open about it and so all these people are constantly producing uh, reams and reams and endless quantities of nonsense and I think it's called Brandolini's law that it's yeah. uh, it's, it's much more difficult to refute it. AI overthrows Brandolini's law exactly with Pierre and Chat GPT. <laughs> we are defeating Brandolini's law because Pierre, instead of having to write a giant essay to try and refute all the um, central banking DDoS attack the distributed denial of service attack on people's brains, which is effectively what academic research is. I've always said this, even before chat GPT, I used to say that academic economics is just a a DDoS attack on people's ability to understand economics. Uh, More than 10,000 academic papers are published every year around uh, academic journals Uh, The vast, vast majority of them are completely worthless. Nobody should ever read them. The whole point is that they just confuse you and then they make you think all those people must know what they're talking about. And clearly inflation is good for us and clearly Bitcoin is bad for us. Well, with ChatGPT, Pierre just gives them a prompt, inserts the tweet and finds a refutation for it. And ChatGPT does a pretty good job. Pierre just does a little bit of editing and then he provides the bots, the flesh bots of central banks with uh, a few paragraphs that you need to wade through and try and respond to. And that's an excellent way of running these central banks printers, because they're going to need to keep hiring more and more bots. And we're just going to keep using more and more AI.
1: Yeah. And I I also think that for the audience, for the reader, it has a pedagogical value. I don't want to say the wrong word there. No, that's correct. I might have a, a thought that I can express in two sentences, but if ChatGPT can correctly expand on it into three paragraphs, that will help someone understand it, help the reader understand it. And then I, I win the argument, right? Even if I don't persuade the opponent because they're paid by a central bank, um, I persuade the audience, which is far more important. Exactly. And it's, it's also, I mean, we're humans and at a certain point,
0: Um, When you're dealing with somebody who's clearly being a complete idiot, uh, it's difficult not to tell them that they are being a complete idiot. Uh, But ChatGPT could get around that because you could just tell them refute the argument and then you just put them to refute the argument. And it's much easier to just go through all of the points. And I think the really key thing is that it can bring in the background information that for you is obvious, but for most readers might not be obvious. And so when you're trying to make an argument, you respond In your mind, well, you know, I've read Rothbard. I've read those things. You expect that this guy should have read it and the readers should have read it. But ChatGPT will start from basic building blocks and introduce these um, necessary concepts in order to understand, do it politely, and waste the bot's time. I think that's the best thing about it. So keep doing it.
1: Thank you. Yeah, well, I've got a hot... Um, This has been a really great conversation. Look forward to coming back. We can talk about carbon emissions next time. Uh,
0: (laughs) Yes, carbon accounting.
1: (laughs) But uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. and, And it's always a pleasure to talk with you safe.
0: Likewise. Thanks for coming, Pierre. Take care.
1: All right. Have a good one. Bye. Cheers.